You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for downloading episode 32 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. We actually have to start off this episode with an apology. Yeah, that's right. We, or I, made a mistake last week. And I made it not once, but twice. I called James Buchanan's Pennsylvania estate Wheatfield when it was actually Wheatland. It's kind of funny um, because after listening to the episode in its entirety on Monday and catching my mistake, I went back and looked at my notes and they said Wheatland. So the only thing I can figure is that with just having been to the battlefield, I still had Gettysburg on the brain and was subconsciously thinking of the wheat field, hence my mistake. But just to set the record straight, Buchanan's Pennsylvania estate near Lancaster was indeed named Wheatland. And if y'all ever catch a mistake and want to bring it to our attention, you can contact us on Facebook or through the website or even on Twitter. Yeah, we were kind of disappointed this past week that we didn't hear from all you Buchanan scholars out there about our mistake. Our mistake. Hey, this is a team effort. There's no I in Civil War, Tracy. But that's probably enough about James Buchanan for now. Because, as promised, for this episode, the crisis over Fort Sumter will still be an ongoing concern, of course, but our main focus in this show will be President-elect Abraham Lincoln's journey from Illinois to Washington, and then his inauguration as the 16th President of the United States. When last we left Abraham Lincoln, he was still at home in Springfield, Illinois, besieged by hordes of office-seekers each day, but working diligently behind the scenes to shape the Republican Party's response to the growing secession crisis, and also working to put together his cabinet, his celebrated team of rivals. With the new year of 1861 and the escalating secession crisis, more and more of Abraham Lincoln's Springfield neighbors noticed the president-elect almost continually wore a concerned expression now. He was grave and reflective, as if he were constantly carrying a heavy burden around with him. And well might Lincoln seem more careworn, for on January 9th, South Carolina artillery opened fire on the Star of the West, an unarmed merchant vessel that President Buchanan had sent to reinforce and resupply Major Robert Anderson's command at Fort Sumter. On that same day, Mississippi became the second state to secede from the Union, quickly followed by Florida on the 10th, Alabama on the 11th, and then Georgia on January 19th. Shortly before that widely expected wave of secession kicked off, 
A Pennsylvania Republican anxious to avert disunion, Congressman James T. Hale, had begged Lincoln to reconsider a compromise that would revive and extend the Missouri Compromise Line. But in his reply to Hale, the president-elect reaffirmed his steadfast determination not only to preserve the permanence of the Union, but also to reject any further compromise over the extension of slavery. Lincoln said, quote, We have just carried an election on principles fairly stated to the people. Now we are told in advance the government shall be broken up unless we surrender to those we have beaten before we take the offices. In this they are attempting to play upon us, or they are in dead earnest. Either way, if we surrender, it is the end of us and of the government. They will repeat the experiment upon us ad libitum. Which is a legal term that means in accordance with desire. Right. They will repeat the experiment upon us ad libitum, or in accordance with desire. A year shall not pass till we shall have to take Cuba as a condition upon which they will stay in the Union. They now have the Constitution, under which we have lived over 70 years, and acts of Congress of their own framing, with no prospect of their being changed. And they can never have a more shallow pretext for breaking up the government or extorting a compromise than now. End quote. So as we mentioned before in the podcast, President-elect Abraham Lincoln had decided to take a stand, to draw a line, and say, in effect, despite the South's threats of disunion, there will be no more compromise over the extension of slavery. This far has slavery spread across the face of the nation, but not one inch farther. And as we also mentioned before on the podcast, we think that's one of the most courageous decisions ever made by an American president. Exactly. But as it drew near to the time when he would leave for Washington, it was not only issues of national importance that weighed upon Abraham Lincoln's mind. There were also personal matters that needed to be attended to. Before leaving for Washington, Lincoln wished to pay a visit to his aging stepmother, Sarah Bush Lincoln. And so on January 30th, he slipped away from Springfield, escaping the reporters and office seekers, and traveled by train and then by horse and buggy to Farmington, a small remote community in Coles County, Illinois. Abraham had a long and emotional visit with his stepmother, and he also paid a visit to his father's grave. When he said goodbye to Sarah, she was in tears. The summer before, when she'd heard of her stepson's nomination, she feared that if he won the election, something terrible would happen to him. Years later, she recalled, I did not want Abe to run for president, did not want him elected, was afraid somehow or other that something would happen to him and that I should see him no more. As they parted, Abraham tried to comfort his tearful stepmother, saying, No, no, Mama, trust in the Lord and all will be well. We will see each other again. But Sarah Bush Lincoln's premonition turned out to be true. Something terrible would happen to her stepson, and they would never see each other again. Sarah lived until April 1869, when she died at the age of 80. Returning to Springfield from his visit with his stepmother, Abraham Lincoln rented his family's beloved home to Lucien Tilton, a retired railroad executive, for $350 a year. And then the Lincolns had a yard sale. A yard sale? Well, whatever the 19th century equivalent of a yard sale would be. And they sold much of their furniture... And then the Lincolns also gave their floppy-eared dog Fido to a neighbor. And then, much to the everlasting dismay of generations of future historians, 
Mary Lincoln went out back and burned heaps of she and her husband's old personal letters and family papers. Now, Abraham Lincoln did leave a batch of his letters and papers for safekeeping with Elizabeth Grimsley, Mary's cousin, but, again to the everlasting dismay of historians, the Grimsley's maid one day mistakenly thought they were trash and burned most of it. On the afternoon of his final day in Springfield, Sunday, February 10, 1861, Abraham Lincoln walked to his law office at 105 South 5th Street to meet with his friend and law partner, William Herndon. After the two men conferred about unfinished legal business and reminisced about old times, Herndon later recalled that Lincoln grew silent. In his book, Lincoln, President-Elect, Harold Holzer describes what happened next. Quote, Finally, Lincoln broke the silence to inquire, Billy, how long have we been together? Over 16 years, came the answer. We've never had a crossword during all that time, have we? No, indeed we have not, Herndon replied. At that, Lincoln hauled himself up from the rickety couch, gathered the books and papers he had selected to take with him, and made one additional request, to have one last look at the old Lincoln-Herndon signboard that swung on its rusty hinges at the foot of the stairway. There, lowering his voice, the senior partner advised, Let it hang there undisturbed. Give our clients to understand that the election of a president makes no change in the firm of Lincoln and Herndon. If I live, I'm coming back sometime, and then we'll go right on practicing law as if nothing ever happened. End quote. The next morning, Monday, February 11, 1861, dawned cold, with rain dripping from low-hanging clouds. President-elect Abraham Lincoln arrived at the small, brick, Great Western Railway Station and waited inside for his special three-car inaugural train's departure. Before Lincoln left, one newspaperman who was present reported, quote, The president-elect took his station in the waiting room and allowed his friends to pass by him and take his hand for the last time. His face was pale and quivered with emotion so deep as to render him almost unable to utter a single word, end quote. And then the ringing of the engine's bell told Lincoln it was time to depart. As he stepped out onto the platform, he found that a crowd of his Springfield neighbors had gathered in the gloomy drizzle to see him off. Lincoln had previously announced to the papers that he would make no departure speech, but as the crowd of familiar faces pressed him for some remarks, the president-elect hesitated. Finally, though caught off guard, Lincoln gathered himself to offer a speech he hadn't intended to give. In a voice choked with feeling, he said, quote, Friends, no one who has never been placed in a like position can understand my feelings at this hour, nor the oppressive sadness I feel at this parting. For more than a quarter of a century I have lived among you, and during all that time I have received nothing but kindness at your hands. Here I have lived from my youth, until now I am an old man. Here the most sacred ties of earth were assumed, here all my children were born, and here one of them lies buried. To you, dear friends, I owe all that I have, all that I am. All the strange checkered past seems to crowd now upon my mind. Today I leave you. I go to assume a task more difficult than that which devolved upon General Washington. Unless the great God who assisted him shall be with and aid me, I must fail. But if the same omniscient mind and almighty arm that directed and protected him shall guide and support me, I shall not fail, I shall succeed. 
Let us all pray that the God of our fathers may not forsake us now. To him I commend you all. Permit me to ask that with equal security and faith, you all will invoke his wisdom and guidance for me. With these few words I must leave you. For how long I know not. Friends, one and all, I must now bid you an affectionate farewell. End quote. By all accounts, that eloquent, impromptu address moved not only the audience, but also the speaker, to tears. Then the president-elect turned and entered the train, and a few moments later it moved slowly forward and left the station. Abraham Lincoln would never set foot in Springfield again. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In one of those odd coincidences that pop up sometimes with historical events, on the very same day that Abraham Lincoln set out on his inaugural journey from Illinois to Washington, D.C., Jefferson Davis also set out on his inaugural journey from his home in Mississippi to Montgomery, Alabama. Like Lincoln's winding trip through the Midwest and Northeast, Davis's journey was also a meandering one. But whereas Lincoln's circuitous route was intentional, Davis's was not. In all, Davis traveled for five days, covering nearly 700 roundabout miles to reach a city that lay only about 200 miles from where he lived. That was because the rickety southern railway networks were woefully underdeveloped, and so Davis was forced to travel north to Memphis before heading south again to Atlanta and then connecting for the westward westward journey to Montgomery. But anyway, because their two journeys happened to start on the same day, February 11, 1861, that meant for the first five of the 13 days that Lincoln was traveling, the national press was also giving coverage to Jefferson Davis's competitive inaugural tour. As Rich just mentioned, Abraham Lincoln's inaugural journey was a meandering one. 
It had been arranged so that the president-elect would go through the state capitals of Indiana, Ohio, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, as well as a stop on George Washington's birthday in Philadelphia, the birthplace of the nation. During his winding journey through the Midwest and Northeast, the president-elect finally broke the official silence that he had maintained in Springfield throughout the election campaign the previous year and then also after his election in November. With the secession crisis steadily worsening, it's not hard to imagine how eagerly people in both the North and South waited for Lincoln to break his silence and deliver some pre-inaugural remarks while he journeyed eastward. But the speeches that Lincoln made on his inaugural journey met a decidedly mixed reception. Some people were put off by what they considered to be trifling and flippant remarks concerning the ongoing secession crisis, such as at Pittsburgh, where he said there was really no emergency, that, quote, in plain words, there's really no crisis except an artificial one, as may be gotten up at any time by designing politicians, end quote. Needless to say, to a very many concerned people, the approaching national calamity felt real enough, and they wanted more than this from the man they felt held the destiny of the country in his hands. Others were scandalized by Lincoln's speech at Indianapolis when he compared the Union to a regular marriage, but then said that Southerners seemed to view it as, quote, a sort of free love arrangement, end quote, that they could take up or leave as passions dictated. And kids, if you don't know what a free love arrangement is, ask your parents, but suffice it to say, you just didn't speak of such things in polite 19th century society. But those are just isolated instances, and Lincoln's inaugural journey speeches, when taken in the sum of their parts, reveal a man sincerely attempting to demonstrate affability, assurance, and humility, all while not offending any of the union that would be left by the time he took office. Don't get us wrong, Abraham Lincoln certainly stumbled with some of his remarks, especially those offered at the beginning of his travels. But as he proceeded toward Washington and his journey neared its end in the East, his remarks grew more refined and he seemed to find his true voice. A Boston newspaper recognized this, reporting, quote, Mr. Lincoln's speeches grow better as he comes eastward, end quote. Lincoln's inaugural journey did take a dramatic, slightly sinister turn, though, when he reached Philadelphia. There, the detective Alan Pinkerton warned the president-elect that assassins planned to kill him in Baltimore before he made the final leg of his journey to Washington. Pinkerton said that the assassins planned to kill Lincoln when he changed trains in Baltimore on the 23rd. Back in those days, even in major cities, many track lines didn't actually connect, So Lincoln would have had to get off a train on one side of Baltimore, travel through the city, then get on another train on the other side of the city, and then continue on south to Washington. Right. And remember that Maryland was a slave state. And Baltimore was a city that was not only already notorious for its violent hooligans, but it was also notorious for its pro-Southern sympathies. In the presidential election, Lincoln had only got 1 or 2% of the vote in Baltimore. And Baltimore's mayor and city council had already informed Lincoln's party that it would not be extended any formal hospitality. So anyway, Pinkerton seemed to have evidence of a well-planned assassination plot, and the worried detective urged Lincoln to abort his published schedule, leave Philadelphia immediately, and go right through Baltimore to Washington that night. 
Well, Lincoln refused to abandon his plans in Philadelphia, which included a public flag raising the next day at Independence Hall, and he also refused to cancel his visit to Pennsylvania State Capitol, Harrisburg. The president-elect did agree, though, that then, rather than go through Baltimore openly, he would slip through the city at night with Pinkerton. Immediately after that disturbing meeting with Pinkerton, Lincoln returned to his hotel suite where he received another shock. William H. Seward's son, Frederick, was there, having raced from Washington to Philadelphia at his father's behest to warn Lincoln that General Winfield Scott believed there was a plot afoot to assassinate the president-elect as he passed through Baltimore. Upon questioning Frederick Seward, Lincoln was convinced, convinced this was an altogether separate investigation than the one Pinkerton had just told him about. And so after Philadelphia, Lincoln traveled westward to Harrisburg, where he met with Pennsylvania's recently elected Republican governor, Andrew Curtin. While that was going on, Alan Pinkerton was busy deploying his agents and arranging the details to carry out the plan to slip the president-elect through Baltimore that night. That evening, after a hasty dinner, Abraham Lincoln went to his room, put on a soft, wide-brimmed hat and a long overcoat to conceal his identity, and then, at about 6 p.m., went out to a waiting carriage. Besides Pinkerton, Lincoln was accompanied only by his physically imposing friend and bodyguard, Ward Hill Lehman. Pinkerton had arranged that all telegraph wires out of Harrisburg were to be cut at 6 o'clock so the news of Lincoln's departure could not be spread. A special train took the small party through the darkness back east of Philadelphia, where tickets on the regular sleeper to Washington were procured. The three men had some time to kill in Philadelphia, and so as they rode about the streets of the city of brotherly love in a carriage, Lehman offered to furnish Lincoln with a revolver and bowie knife, but the president-elect refused. Finally, it was nearing time to leave, and the men, arriving at the station, found that Pinkerton agent Kate Warren had already boarded the train and secured four adjacent double berths in the sleeping car. Warren would accompany the men, posing as the tall, bearded gentleman's sister. No one was sleepy, so the three men and Kate chatted or rode in silence until the train reached Baltimore at 3.30 a.m. The city was quiet as horses drew the sleeper car through the streets to the Camden Street Station of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. At 4.15, the train departed without incident, and it arrived at Washington at 6 a.m. on the morning of February 23, 1861. There were no bands, no cheering crowds. No one knew the president-elect was arriving that morning, and so the small party got off the car quickly and headed into the station. But inside, a man eyed Lincoln closely and approached, saying, Abe, you can't play that on me. Pinkerton, fearing they'd been discovered, grabbed the man's arm and drew back to strike him. But then Lincoln recognized that it was an old friend, Representative Elihu Washburn of Illinois. Lincoln cried out, Don't strike him! Alan, don't strike him! That is my friend Washburn. Don't you know him? News of Abraham Lincoln's unexpected and secret arrival in Washington quickly found its way into the newspapers, and it shocked the country. One reporter who had been accompanying the inaugural party, Joseph Howard of the New York Times, was especially bitter that he had been left behind, clueless, in Harrisburg, so he went out of his way to depict Lincoln's journey through Baltimore in the worst possible light, making it sound as if the president-elect had put on a cowardly disguise and snuck through the darkened city, trembling in fear for his life. Other newspapers were quick to take up the attack, saying Lincoln had shamefully went through Baltimore like a thief in the night, 
and portraying the president-elect's clandestine arrival in Washington as unseemly and undignified. So was there really a genuine assassination plot? If there was, was it serious? No one knows for sure. When Lincoln's wife and sons went through Baltimore later, as scheduled, they were harassed by hooligans, but never really threatened. But then two months after the president-elect slipped through Baltimore, pro-secession rioters there violently attacked a train bearing Massachusetts soldiers en route to Washington, and blood was spilled in the streets. But while all of that paints Baltimore in a bad light, it's not evidence that there was an authentic assassination plot against Abraham Lincoln in February 1861. Still about the affair, Harold Holzer says that it's hard to condemn Lincoln for the Baltimore escapade, especially considering the evidence of a plot that he'd been given. But with the benefit of hindsight, Holzer concludes, quote, If a Baltimore plot existed at all, it was at most ad hoc, poorly organized, and probably destined to fail, end quote. After his premature arrival in Washington, one of Abraham Lincoln's first visitors at the Willard Hotel, where the president-elect took up residence until the inaugural, was his Secretary of State-designate, William H. Seward. Seward had been caught flat-footed by the news of Lincoln's unexpected arrival in the Capitol, but he recovered quickly and made certain he was one of the first to arrive at Lincoln's door. Seward promptly took control of the president-elect's hectic schedule, ushering Lincoln around Washington, making introductions, and generally doing his best to make himself indispensable to Lincoln. Seward wrote to his wife, saying of Lincoln, quote, He is very cordial and kind toward me, simple, natural, and agreeable. End quote. Seward was seldom far from Lincoln's side in the days leading up to the inaugural. William Seward made himself helpful, assisting Lincoln establish himself socially and politically in Washington because, as we mentioned before on the podcast, Seward was envisioning a Lincoln cabinet in which he, rather than the inexperienced and bumbling president, would be the dominant influence, functioning in the role of prime minister, if you will. Seward was a keen political tactician, and it seems his actions immediately after the president-elect's arrival in Washington were a first step toward exerting a subtle control over Lincoln. Indeed, as we already know from episode 29 of the podcast, Seward was already on board as the Secretary of State-designate, but Abraham Lincoln actually spent the last several days before taking the reins of government finalizing his list of cabinet appointments. Delegations beat a path to Lincoln's door with the last gasp foreign against arguments regarding some aspirants, including both Ohio's Salmon Chase and Pennsylvania's Simon Cameron. Matters took an unexpected twist when Seward, upon learning that one of his rivals, Chase, was to be awarded the Treasury post, and another rival, Cameron, was to get the War Department, while Seward saw his dreams of being the dominant figure in a tame cabinet evaporating before his eyes. So Seward wrote to Lincoln on March 2nd, just two days before the inauguration, mind you, telling Lincoln he was no longer willing to serve in the cabinet. Here was Seward trying to exert a not-so-subtle control over Lincoln, but Lincoln refused to panic, and instead he called Seward's bluff. Lincoln knew that William Seward dearly wanted to be a part of the incoming administration, so Lincoln cleverly let it be known that he was willing to dump the entire slate of cabinet officers and start over, without Seward included at all. 
Well, Lincoln floated this news and then waited. As he told his secretary, John Nicolay, I can't afford to let Seward take the first trick. The following morning, March 3rd, Seward went to see Lincoln at Willard's Hotel and found the president-elect holding firm on Cameron and Chase. After that, nothing more was said of Seward's request to be dropped from the cabinet, and he and Lincoln acted as if nothing had happened. Still, Seward kept Lincoln guessing a day or two more, only reversing his withdrawal on March 4th after Lincoln scribbled a note asking him to do so, writing that the public interest demanded it, and Lincoln added his own personal feelings deeply wished it. The nine days between Abraham Lincoln's arrival in Washington and his inauguration were both exhilarating and exhausting, but finally it was the long-awaited day. March 4, 1861, dawned, windy, cool, and overcast. A crowd of between 25 and 30,000 began arriving on the Capitol grounds in the early hours, hoping to find a place close enough to hear Lincoln's address. Rumors raced through the expectant city, telling of threats to Lincoln and of planned attacks on Washington. And so Winfield Scott had armed soldiers stationed on the rooftops of buildings along Pennsylvania Avenue. Cavalry patrolled all of the major crossroads along the parade route. Officers on horseback would escort the open, four-seated carriage bearing Buchanan and Lincoln, pressing close to the vehicle's sides to deny an assassin a clear shot into the carriage. Sharpshooters were posted in the windows of the Capitol, constantly scanning the crowd around the inaugural platform. The old general-in-chief, a loyal soldier, was taking no chances with the new president's safety on Inauguration Day. Scott stationed himself on Capitol Hill with a battery of light artillery. At precisely 12 noon, the president-elect came out a side door of the Willard. While a band played Hail to the Chief, Lincoln took his seat in the waiting carriage opposite President Buchanan. As the carriage bounced along Pennsylvania Avenue, heading toward Capitol Hill, Buchanan said to Lincoln, If you are as happy in entering the White House as I shall feel on returning to Wheatland, you are a happy man. After arriving at the Capitol, with its still unfinished dome rising above them, Buchanan and Lincoln went inside and attended the swearing-in of Vice President Hannibal Hamlin. Although the day, up until then, had been raw and rainy, bright sunshine now broke through the clouds. Lincoln went out to the temporary platform that had been erected for the occasion on the East Portico, where he was introduced by his old friend, Senator Edward D. Baker of Oregon. Baker and Lincoln had once served together as, as young legislators in the Illinois State House, and the Lincolns had named their son Eddie after Baker. Baker will die later the same year, 1861, at the Battle of Ball's Bluff, while serving as a colonel in the Union Army and leading an attack against Confederate forces not very far up the Potomac River from where he stood on this special day, introducing his friend, Abraham Lincoln. As Lincoln stood, he realized there was no place to set his top hat and cane. His old rival, Stephen Douglas, was seated close by, and seeing Lincoln's uncertainty, stepped forward and took the hat and cane, holding them during the ceremony. As Abraham Lincoln then took out his steel-rimmed spectacles and stepped forward to the small speaker's table, it's safe to say that no inaugural address in American history had ever been presented in such turbulent times. In the four long months between his election and this day, the Union had been shattered, and the terrible prospect of civil war was now looming on the horizon. 
The 3,600 words of Lincoln's first inaugural address touched upon all of the points that he had made during his campaign and had repeated in correspondence and interviews since his election. He asserted his conviction that the Union is permanent, secession is anarchy, and violence in the cause of secession was insurrection. Lincoln again reassured the South that he would not interfere with slavery where it was already legal, and he appealed to the citizens of the seceded states by promising not to assail them and saying there would be no conflict unless they began it. And then, earnestly and eloquently, Lincoln said, quote, While you have no oath registered in heaven to destroy the government, I shall have the most solemn one to preserve, protect, and defend it. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. End quote. At the conclusion of the address, the elderly and frail Chief Justice Taney stepped forward. Abraham Lincoln placed his left hand on the Bible, raised his right hand, and repeated the oath of office. As Lincoln ended the oath, promising to faithfully execute the office of president, the cheering began, and nearby cannon boomed in salute. Abraham Lincoln, the 16th president of the United States of America, kissed the Bible, shook hands with Tawny, and then turned to find Stephen Douglas, his hand outstretched. Watching from a distance, General Scott sighed in relief, saying, Thank God, now we have a government. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Seward, Lincoln's Indispensable Man, by Walter Starr. William Seward and Abraham Lincoln may have got off to a rocky start, but Seward did eventually come to admire Lincoln a lot and became not only the president's closest advisor, but also his friend. Now, William Starr's excellent biography of Seward provides us with uh, a fascinating look at a man who, even though he served in Abraham Lincoln's shadow, was really a remarkable man in his own right. So, as always, you can find all of our book recommendations and lots of other interesting stuff at the podcast headquarters, which is at www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Before we sign off, we want to thank everyone who has joined our growing little community on Facebook recently. That's actually become the main means of communication by which we hear from y'all, so a big thank you to everyone who has liked us on Facebook and used it to get in touch with us. Definitely. And if you haven't been on our Facebook page yet, please check it out. Okay, and with that, we'll look forward to the next show when we'll return to the crisis over Fort Sumter, which Abraham Lincoln has just inherited. But for now, thanks for joining us for this episode of the Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you join us again next week, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.
list up that yard sale. A yard sale? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to do that? Read that part? And kids, if you aren't sure (laughs) what a a free love arrangement is. (laughs) (laughs) And kids, if you aren't sure what a free love... (laughs) A free love arrangement is... (laughs) Don't call us. (laughs) Ask your parents.